So Matthew 17, beginning in verse 1, says, And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias must come first? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall come, shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias is come already. And they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall the Son of Man suffer. Also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. We'll pray. Lord, just as we are turning to your word, Lord, we thank you for it. Thank you that we can read it aloud together. We thank you for the blessing that it is to us, Lord, that we can learn of who you are, your character, your love, your love for us, um, your creation, Lord, and the sacrifice that Christ made as he shed his blood on the cross for our sins, Lord, and this forgiveness, the salvation that we can have through that, Lord. So we're grateful for that. Um, Lord, help us as we now look at this passage once again. Pray, Lord, that you would guide my mind, um, my tongue. Help me to speak things that are true and right, and Lord, that are an encouragement and a help in some way this morning. We just ask, again ask your blessing in Christ's name. Amen. As children, many of us learn about the wondrous process by which a caterpillar morphs into a butterfly. The story usually begins with a very hungry caterpillar hatching from an egg. The caterpillar, or what is more scientifically termed a larva, stuffs itself with leaves growing plumper and longer through a series of molts in which it sheds its skin. One day the caterpillar stops eating, hangs itself upside down from a twig or leaf and spins itself a silky cocoon and molts into a shiny chrysalis. Within its protective casing, the caterpillar radically transforms its body eventually emerging as a butterfly or moth. 
But what does this radical transformation entail? How does a caterpillar rearrange itself into a butterfly? What happens inside a chrysalis or a cocoon? Well, first, the caterpillar digests itself, releasing enzymes to dissolve all of its tissues. If you were to cut open a cocoon or chrysalis at just the right time, caterpillar soup would ooze out. But the contents of the pupa are not entirely an amorphous mess. Certainly high, highly organized groups of cells known, and I, I thought this was an interesting term, imaginal disks. Imaginal disks. Survive the digestive process. Before hatching, when a caterpillar is still developing inside its egg, it grows an imaginal disk for each of the adult body parts it will need as a mature butterfly or moth. Discs for its eyes, for its wings, its legs, and so on. In some species, these imaginal discs remain dormant throughout the caterpillar's life. In other species, the discs begin to take the shape of adult body parts even before the caterpillar forms a chrysalis or cocoon. Some caterpillars walk around with tiny rudimentary wings tucked inside their bodies, though you would never know it by looking at them. Once a caterpillar has disintegrated all of its tissues, except for these imaginal discs, and I'm wondering if they're called that because the scientists are just imagining that they exist because they can't come up with a better explanation. <laughs> Those discs use the protein-rich soup all around them to fuel the rapid cell division required to form the wings, antenna, legs, eyes, genitals, and all the other features of an adult butterfly or moth. The imaginal discs for a fruit fly's wing, for example, might begin with only 50 cells and increase to more than 50,000 cells by the end of metamorphosis. Depending on the species, certain caterpillar muscles and sections of the nervous system are largely preserved in the adult butterfly. One study even suggests that moths remember what they learned in later stages of their lives as caterpillars. What an incredible picture of God's design and power do we see in the life process of something as simple as a butterfly. As I was doing some reading this week, I came across a comment of regarding verse 2 of Matthew 17. It says, and speaking of Jesus, was transfigured before them. That word transfigured in the Greek is metamorpho. The same word we get, metamorphosis. <laughs> that process of changing from a caterpillar to a butterfly. And so when I thought about that process and how even though the components of the butterfly existed within the caterpillar, there is nothing the same 
in the end product. I wonder if that is a picture of the resurrected body of Christ. And in turn, a picture of the resurrected body that we are going to possess one day. The, the, the things that comprise that body may exist inside of us today, but will in no way resemble <laughs> what we are today, because it'll be made perfect. Let's, I know I, I turned to this passage um, last week, but I, I want to read 1 Corinthians 15 once again as it describes that process. So 1 Corinthians 15, uh, starting in verse 50. says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. And that's that statement. It's like this body that we live in today cannot inherit the kingdom of God. I cannot go to heaven. I cannot be in God's presence in this body because this body contains too much sin, <laughs> too many flaws because of sin. I got myself in some trouble a couple of weeks ago when I was preaching elsewhere, talking about the, the problems that we face in this world, all of the deformities in our bodies, the diseases in our bodies, and I didn't make it clear as to what I meant when I said it, was why I got in trouble for it. But all of those things, all of those issues that we have, my sore shoulders, my kids' sore body parts as they're growing, all the diseases, all of, and very specifically, even the pain that a woman experiences during childbirth, all of these things are a result of sin. And it's not necessarily specifically a result of directly of my personal sin that I've committed caused this problem. <laughs> and if only I would stop doing that sin, this problem would go away. It's not like that. It's that sin in our world, when we go back to the garden and Adam and Eve chose to knowingly disobeyed God, they chose to sin. A curse was put on our earth because of that sin. And that deterioration process started at that moment. We would not have grown old. We have not, would not have gotten sick. We would not have been sore and tired, sweating from our work. None of those things would have happened had sin not entered. It's not that work wouldn't have happened. Work would happen, but it wouldn't have been labor, <laughs> laborious. It wouldn't have been painful, agonizing. It wouldn't have created sore muscles. It wouldn't have been the sweat of our brow that we did these things. We wouldn't be fighting the world, fighting back the weeds and the thistles. I was out uh, putting up fences this week with Jason Reed, and he says, I kind of like putting up fence this time of year compared to the spring because you don't need a mask to keep the mosquitoes out of your nostrils. 
<laughs> it's just all these things that we face, all the issues of life are a result of sin. Just sin in general has caused all of this. And because of sin, this body cannot inherit the kingdom of God. I cannot enter into God's presence in this flesh. And we'll look at that just a little bit more in, a, in just one moment. Let me continue reading here. Verse 51 in 1 Corinthians 15. It says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. I didn't look up that up, but I'm picturing this as that metamorphosis. We shall all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is law. But thanks be to God, which giveth, giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that description The dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall, be we shall be changed. We're going to go from the caterpillar <laughs> and turned into caterpillar soup and come out a butterfly. A brand new, perfect, beautiful, immortal, unsinning, untainted by sin, new body that is presentable to Christ. And that's the change. That's what that transformation from a caterpillar to a butterfly is picturing for us. And God puts these examples all around us in our world of his creation, of what his intent and what our future looks like. And just what a beautiful picture that is. Now, in this transfiguration passage, where this image is shown to these three men, Peter, James, and John, where Christ is transfigured before them, he gets a new body. He gets a, he's shiny. <laughs> His face did shine as the sun. It's not his earthly, physical body. Jesus was resurrected with a new body, and it was different. And we see, at the end of the Gospels, we see these just very brief accounts of Jesus appearing to people at different times. And it's very evident that there is a change been made in his body. He's recognizable to some extent, but not immediately on just looking at him. It, there was something different about that. It was not the same body that he had when he was walking with, with the disciples during his ministry. 
This next passage, this next part of here, verse 3 says, Behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And I, I know I, I, I kind of walked through this as a picture of the future, right? Of the kingdom and the, the process of the end times. But I just wanted to talk a little bit more about why Moses and why Elijah. And so, why Moses indeed? If you want to turn with me, if you've got your Bibles, to Exodus chapter 33. I want to look at... We could look at a lot of parts of Moses' life, um, of his ministry, the things that God had him do, but there's just this one area that really does stand out. So Exodus 33, and I'm going to start in verse 12. It says, And Moses said unto the Lord, and Moses I'm going to back up one verse before I... But Moses is on the mountain speaking with God. Um, this is where God is giving the Ten Commandments and all those things. So Israel is out of Egypt at this point, before the mountain of God. Verse 11 says, And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face, as a man speaks unto his friend. And he turned again into the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, departed not out of the tabernacle. And Moses said unto the Lord, See thou sayest unto me, Bring up this people, and thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Yet thou hast said, I know thee by name, and thou hast also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way, that I, am, that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight and consider that this nation is thy people. And he said, My presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. And he said unto him, If thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. In other words, if, if God, if you're not going to be with us, I don't want to go. For wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? Is it not in that thou goest with us? So shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. And the Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken, for thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. And he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And he's, you really have to pay attention to this conversation, because there's a lot of he said, and it's changing who he is every time it says that. But. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee. And will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. 
And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass, while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in a cliff to the rock, and will cover thee with my hand, while I pass by. And I will take away my hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. I look at this passage of this story. Moses is literally up on this mountain and he's talking with God. He's having a conversation and verse 11 says, they spoke face to face as a man speaketh unto his friend. But clearly, it's not face to face in the that Moses could physically see God's face. Because God says later, there shall no man see me and live. Remember our corruption cannot <laughs> enter into God's presence. Our physical body cannot be in God's presence and live because God cannot have sin in his presence. And so God says, I can do this <laughs> to satisfy and to show Moses the favor that he has earned. And think about, do you have a relationship with God that you could literally describe it as your conversation being face-to-face -face with him? Could you ask God, just show me a pic, show me, show me your face. <laughs> Give me a glimpse. And I don't think, okay, well, yeah, we can do that. But is God going to answer that you have found such favor in my eyes? You have been so obedient, so faithful, that yes, I'm willing to do that. It's not a matter of proving who he is. Sometimes we demand things of God and we have no business doing that. But this is just... Moses had found grace in God's sight. And God wanted to do this for Moses. I see that God showing Moses his presence and you know, putting him in that spot in the rock and walking past and letting him see his back as he walked away. Moses got to see God's glory. Even just a, a, sh a, a slightly veiled aspect of it, but he got to see God's glory. So it now makes sense that Moses is one of those standing with Christ at his transfiguration, is that he got to see the full glory of God. He got to be in God's presence at that time because of his faithfulness. And there's something, I, I'm sure I don't understand the whole aspect of this because there hasn't been a resurrection yet. There hasn't been a new body given to anybody yet at this point because Christ hasn't been sacrificed for the sins yet. Remember, 
those Old Testament saints are not in heaven with God at this point. They were kept in a separate compartment, held until Christ made that sacrifice, until Christ was crucified for their sins and made that final payment. All those original Old Testament sacrifices were just temporary. So I'm, I'm curious what exactly is going on at the Transfiguration where Moses is present there. <laughs> because that change hasn't yet happened. There's an interesting, um, another aspect to that, I'll just briefly mention in a, in a few minutes. But I also want to look at another part of this story. In the next chapter, chapter 34 of Exodus, later on in the chapter, starting in verse 29, it says, And it came to pass, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, with the two table of testimony in Moses' hand, when he came down from the mount, that Moses wist not that his, the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. And when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come nigh him. And Moses called unto them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned unto him. And Moses talked with them, and afterwards... All the children of Israel came nigh, and he gave them in commandment all that the Lord had spoken with him in the Mount Sinai. Until Moses had done speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But when Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he took the veil off until he came out. And he came out and spake unto the children of Israel, that which he was commanded. And the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of, his, of Moses' face shone. And Moses put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. Moses, as a result of being in God's presence, that reflection of God's glory made his, the skin of his face to shine. And not just a little bit. Like, this is... These people were scared of him. <laughs> they wouldn't go near him because his face was shining. This is the Moses that is present with Jesus at that transfiguration. But this is the picture of what we ought to be When we're in our Bibles, we are in God's presence. We are experiencing who God is. When we worship God, we're having fellowship with him. And his presence should reflect off of us as we go into the world. And maybe we don't physically shine. Maybe we should, but maybe we don't physically shine. But the Bible very clearly describes us as a light shining in the darkness. We're supposed to make people uncomfortable around us, <laughs> right? Some friends we were talking to said, we don't fit in with the world, but the Bible says we're supposed to be a peculiar people. <laughs> and so us being weird to the world 
is right, <laughs> is how we ought to be. We are supposed to be weird. We're not supposed to fit in. I want to bring a couple things together, and I don't know how to accomplish it without saying what I'm trying to accomplish before I make the points to... So I'm just going to, I'm going to throw this out there, and we'll bring it back together in a minute. Exodus chapter 4, um, verse 1, verse 1 to 9. Still about Moses. And Moses answered and said, But behold, they will not believe me, nor hearken unto my voice. For they will say, The Lord hath not appeared unto thee. So this is when Moses is being called by God to go to Egypt, to, to call the people out, to free the Israelites out of the bondage in Egypt. And the Lord said unto him, What is in thine hand? And he said, A rod. And he said, God said, Cast it on the ground. And he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from before it. And the Lord said unto Moses, Put forth thine hand and take it by the tail. And he put forth his hand and he caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. That it that they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob hath appeared unto thee. And the Lord said furthermore unto him, Put now thine hand into thy bosom. And he put his hand into his bosom. Did this. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous as snow. And he said, Put thine hand into thy bosom again. And so he put it, his hand into his bosom again and plucked it out of his bosom. And behold, it was turned again as his, as his other flesh. And it shall come to pass, if they will not believe thee, neither hearken unto the voice of the first sign, that they will believe the voice of the latter sign. And it shall come to pass, if they will not believe also these two signs, neither hearken unto thy voice, that, they, that thou shalt take of the water of the river and pour it upon the dry land, and the water which thou takest out of the river shall become blood upon the dry land. And I'm going to skip over to chapter 7. There's a lot more takes place in between here, but we get the fulfillment of this in chapter 7. Starting verse 10. It says, And Moses and Aaron went in unto Pharaoh. Competition this morning. <laughs> um, it says, Moses and Aaron went in unto Pharaoh. And they did so as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers, now the magicians of Egypt. They also did in like manner with their enchantments. For they cast down every man his rod, and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. And he hardened Pharaoh's heart, that he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. And the Lord said unto Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuseth to let the people go. Get thee unto Pharaoh in the morning. Lo, he goeth out unto the water, and thou shalt stand by the river's brink. Against he come, and the rod which was turned to a serpent thou shalt take in thine hand. And thou shalt say unto him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me unto thee, saying, Let my people go. 
that they may serve me in the wilderness. And behold, hitherto thou would not hear. Thus saith the Lord, In this thou shalt know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will smite with the rod that is in mine hand upon the waters which are in the river, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that is in the river shall die, and the river shall stink, and the Egyptians shall loathe to drink of the water of the river. And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, Take thy rod and stretch out thine hand upon the waters of Egypt, upon their streams, upon their rivers, upon their ponds, and upon all their pools of water, that they may become blood, and that there may be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. And Moses and Aaron did so. And the Lord commanded, and he lifted up the rod and smote the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. And the fish that was in the river died, and the river stank, and the Egyptians could not drink of the water of the river, and there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. That becomes important in a moment. <laughs> this is Moses. We have the other person that is in that transfiguration vision is Elijah. And I want to build the same picture with him. Hopefully it will happen a little faster. 2 Kings chapter 2. Second Kings chapter 2, again starting in verse 1 here. And this is just a picture of why it is Elijah that is at that transfiguration. And we see this story playing out. It says, And it came to pass when the Lord would take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. And Elijah said unto Elisha, Tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord hath sent me to Bethel. And Elisha said unto him, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they went down to Bethel, and the sons of the prophets that were at Bethel came forth to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he said, Yeah, I know it. Hold ye your peace. And Elijah said unto him, Elisha, tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he said, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they came to Jericho. And the sons of the prophets which were at Jericho came to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he answered, Yeah, I know it. Hold ye your peace. And Elijah said unto him, Tarry, I pray thee, here, for the Lord hath sent me to Jordan. And he said, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. And they too went on. And fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood to view afar off. And they too stood by Jordan. And Elijah took off his mantle and wrapped it together and smote the waters. And they were divided hither and thither, so that they too went over on dry ground. And it came to pass, when they were gone over, that Elisha said unto Elijah, sorry, Elijah sent unto Elisha, 
Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. And he said, thou hast asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if thou see me when I am taken from thee, it shall be so unto thee. But if not, it shall not be so. And it came to pass, as they still went on and talked, that behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. I'm going to stop there. There's more to the story, a little bit more to the story. But this is the end of Elijah's ministry. And he has transferred that ministry to Elisha. Um, he, he went and he, he got Elisha, and Elisha has been with him and learning from him. And at this point, he's even refusing to not stay with him right to the, the very end. And he's told over and over again, God's taking Elijah today. He's like, I know it. <laughs> and I'm going to be there and see it. <laughs> and he did. And he got to witness Elijah being caught up without dying. <laughs> There's a, a passage, and I won't read all of the, the other parts in, in the books, book of Kings about Elijah at this point. We'll go to James chapter 5, which really just summarizes the whole point here. Hebrews and then James in the New Testament. James chapter 5. You wonder about Elijah. What kind of man was he that God caught him up without allowing him to die at the end of his life? James 5, verse 17 says, Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. He was just like us. He faced the same trials, temptations, struggles that we have, that we have from day to day. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. What a man of God that his prayer, that it stop raining, and it doesn't rain until he prays again, asking for the rain. And God gave him miraculous care during that time. There was a drought and all the waters dried up, but God cared for him and took care of him and gave him a way to survive through all of that. But what a life. But as this man who was so close to God, who could make the, have this prayer answered in such a way, it's like, I remember as a kid walking home from school one day and there was 
probably one of the heaviest rainfalls I've ever experienced. I don't remember, it might have even had hail. I remember as a kid, I'm like eight, nine, ten years old, something like that. Praying, I was scared because it was such a torrential downpour. And I prayed that God would stop it. And it instantly, it didn't stop raining completely, but it, the torrential downpour stopped. And it was just a light rain from that moment. I just remember the shock of, I prayed that and God answered. <laughs> like, that was like an instantaneous response from God. Just a child pleading with God. But Isaiah, or Elijah, sorry, <laughs> he prayed and it stopped raining on the earth <laughs> completely until he asked again that it rain again. What an answer to prayer. What a level of faith that he must have had toward God that we can't even fathom that level of faith. Unless some of you have experienced that. I, I don't think so, though. But I wanted just to tie in why, why Moses, why Elijah, and a connection because we're talking about the kingdom here and a future glory that is going to be revealed. This was just a picture of what was to come, and we kind of talked about that. If we go to Revelation 11. I was talking this morning about if the church is called out, if there's a rapture of every saved believer prior to the tribulation how do people in the tribulation learn the gospel how do they learn of God and Christ how are people saved during the tribulation if every believer is gone I believe the answer is here we start in verse 3 of Revelation 11 says, and I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before, God, before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth, and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven, let it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and the kindred and the tongues of the nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half, and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. And after three days and a half, 
the spirit of life from God entereth into them, and they stood upon their feet. And great fear fell upon all them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven, saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. And the same hour was there a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell, and in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand, and the remnant were frightened, and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. Now, I'm stop there, but this story of these two witnesses, and at the beginning, it tells us they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and three score days, which is three and a half years. The first half of the seven-year tribulation period. And so you want an answer of how do people learn the gospel? Well, God gives witnesses. And I don't know that it's limited to these two. These are two that are specifically sent for that purpose. And I pointed out those miracles that Moses performed and the miracles that Elijah performed are the exact miracles that these two witnesses are given the power to perform, turning water to blood. And if we continue reading, and I'm sure most of us know the story of Moses and all of the plagues that he brought upon Egypt, this also references an all manner of plagues. This is exactly the ministry that Moses had as he brought Israel out of Egypt. And the other miracle that is shown here, verse 6, is these shall have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. There's going to be a three and a half year drought because by the looks of this, at the beginning of that ministry, this person, whether it's Elijah actually or representation of Elijah, there's going to be a prayer that it stop raining and it's going to stop raining on the earth for three and a half years during their ministry. There's a reason why it's these two men at the transfiguration with Christ. And there's pointing to a future kingdom and that process moving into that kingdom and that through that tribulation is these men are represented here as witnesses. They had such a strong witness to Israel during their earthly ministry and their lives that's going to be carried on during that tribulation. And people are going to respond. There are people going to believe that. Even in this very passage, it speaks of at the end of their life, they're laid in the streets with their heads chopped off. <laughs> but God resurrects them. He puts their bodies back together. And they're resurrected and raised, drawn into heaven. in front of, So people see it. And think of our world. Everyone can see all these things as it's on camera and it's broadcast around the world. Everybody can see it. And then there's this earthquake that destroys the city and kills all these people. But those that remain believe and gave glory to the God of heaven, it says. People, that ministry is to change the hearts of people during the first half of that tribulation, which is a time of peace, and it's at that three and a half year point. It's right at this point 
where we have the beast, the Antichrist, and the mark of the beast comes. And we have these people are going to be killed for refusing to take that mark. But it's not the church going through this. This tribulation period is there. It's referred to at various passages as a time of Jacob's trouble. This is there to deal with Israel because Israel rejected Christ. They were told of their Messiah and they rejected him. And God prophesied that he would judge them for rejecting him. And so that's what that tribulation is for. That seven-year period is judgment against them. But he's loving them and caring for them. And he's saving a remnant. That remnant that responds to this preaching of these witnesses. And it's not limited to Jews through that time. And we see that um, throughout the New Testament that it includes the Gentiles. But it's specifically directed for Israel. And... I better stop talking now. So let's let's pray. Lord, some of what we're looking at here um, doesn't necessarily have a a direct application of how this affects me today, but it does help us to understand your word better as we study these things and um, look into some of these details of what is to come and there is a encouragement in that. There's a hope that we receive in that um, and we can look around our world and see that there is a design in it even in your purposes leading towards these things Lord and so we look forward to your coming. We look forward to being changed, being going through this metamorphosis getting a new, perfect, immortal, incorruptible body, Lord. So we look forward to that, Lord. And Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us to face the trials that we're going to face in this life, in these last days, Lord. So we just, again, we trust that to you, and we commit the time to you, and we thank you for it. In Christ's name, amen.